Well, this morning as we continue in our Advent series from Luke, we're going to be looking at verses 57 through 80 of Luke chapter 1. And we're going to begin by reading Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and 58. These are the words of God. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. God, our Father, we would like to rejoice with these same things today. We pray that by the Spirit you would open up these events to us through your word. Show us the glory, the greatness, the beauty, the might of what you accomplished and how the the result of that is continuing to be spread out through the world until the knowledge of you covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far in Luke's Advent account, we can see God has been building two things. The first is testimony. Testimony from diverse witnesses concerning his son Jesus and John, his forerunner. The second thing God is building is joy at these glad tidings. It began with the angel Gabriel announcing to the old childless priest, Zacharias, that he and his barren wife, Elizabeth, would have joy and gladness, and many would rejoice with them, because Elizabeth would conceive and bear a son who would be great in the eyes of the Lord, who would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and who would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord and prepare them for the Messiah. Then it was Gabriel's announcement way up north in Galilee to the betrothed Virgin Mary that she should rejoice, for the Lord's grace and favor was upon her, and she would conceive and bear a son by the power of the Almighty, who would be called Son of the Highest, who would inherit the throne of David and reign over an everlasting kingdom. And Gabriel also tells Mary of Elizabeth's miraculous conception by the power of the Lord. And Mary's joy for Elizabeth is so great that she immediately travels at least 100 miles to visit her relative Elizabeth. And when she gets there, both Mary and Elizabeth are filled with joy, as is Elizabeth's baby in her womb. And Mary and Elizabeth both burst forth with words of joy by the Holy Spirit. And at that point, the news is going to get out because Mary is going to carry the news of Zacharias and Elizabeth all the way back up north to Galilee where it's going to spread. And it's going to build anticipation. It's going to build joy. And down in the hill country of Judah, which is just a few miles south of Jerusalem, where Zacharias and Elizabeth live, the news is definitely going to spread Because once Elizabeth was five or six months pregnant, she could no longer conceal the pregnancy. Everybody around would know, and everybody around knew them. You have to remember, Zacharias was a priest. They had been there for many years. He was a pastor of the local synagogue. Everybody would have known that Elizabeth was barren all her life, and that now she was too old to conceive anyway. Everybody would have known that this pregnancy is a miracle. Everybody would have known that Zacharias was chosen 
by Lot to go serve in the temple in Jerusalem. And when he came back, he could not talk. The story of what happened down in Jerusalem at the temple would have percolated out to the hill country from those who had been at the temple that day when Zacharias came out and could not speak. And they discerned through his hand gestures that he had witnessed some sort of divine or angelic manifestation in the temple. That sense of joy, anticipation, and the kind of the good fear, the godly fear it produces, the sense that God is on the move. He is doing big things. Would have built to a tremendous pitch by the time Elizabeth gave birth. And so all her relatives and neighbors rejoice with her. And given that her baby was a Jewish boy born under the law of Moses, the next thing that would happen is that on the eighth day, he would be circumcised and officially named, verses 59 through 63. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father that he would have called uh, what he would have call, have them called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. And you can see that the custom among the Jews at that time was for a firstborn son to be called after his father, or at least by the name of a close male relative. But in this case, God has already commanded that the boy's name is to be John. This is significant both in terms of the meaning of the name, which is God is gracious. And that's what's being just displayed right and left in these events. But also establishes the fact that God has a special claim on this boy because he is going to play a special role in preparing a people for Messiah Jesus. And it's only after Zacharias obeys God in naming his son John that his tongue is finally loosed. Verses 64 to 66. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all those who dwelt around them and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So godly fear, good fear, fear that is mingled with joy and anticipation and this sense of God's presence and this sense of God is on the move and God is doing mighty, earth-changing things. That sense, that fear was upon them. And the people who are remembering these things uh, in their hearts are wondering the whole time John the Baptist is growing up, what is this boy going to turn out to be? And the words that are come, going to come from Zacharias' mouth are going to be remembered and discussed for years to come. Because you have to remember... Uh, John the Baptist, being of the tribe of Levi, he is of the priestly line. But he's not going to be a priest in the way that most people were used to somebody being a priest. 
you would enter into the actual service of the priesthood at age 30. And so John the Baptist is not going to enter into his ministry in a formal way until he's 30 years old. But during that whole time, that whole buildup, people are remembering these things. Well then, exactly what did Zacharias say as he praised God when his tongue was freed to speak? Luke tells us in verses 67 through 79. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. As we look at Zacharias' words more closely, remember verse 65. Fear came on all those who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. Zacharias' words by the Holy Spirit is a Hebrew poem. It was almost certainly put to music so it could be sung and easily remembered. This song is the Holy Spirit's succinct summary explaining the gospel to these Israelites who were actually living amidst the events. And what God was doing through their midst, through the birth and life of Jesus and his forerunner John, how those events are going to fulfill all of God's promises and prophecies, going back through the history of Israel beyond to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. Notice also in verse 67 that this song is a prophecy. That means this song will not only speak of future events, it will speak of future events in past tense, as though they've already occurred, because it's emphasizing the fact that these events will surely come to pass. It is not an if, it is a certainty, because God will bring them to pass and God does not fail. So this song was a great gift of the Holy Spirit to believers both then and now with a proper appreciation and respect for the Spirit's words in this song, let's take a closer look. The structure of Zacharias' song is chiastic. That's a common form of Hebrew poetry in which you have a theme that is introduced in the first half of the song, which is then picked up and echoed and amplified in the second half of the song. And there are five main themes that the Spirit has built into the song of Zacharias. And those five themes are what we're going to focus on for the remainder of the sermon 
this morning. The first theme of the Song of Zacharias is that God in Christ has visited his people. God in Christ has visited his people. Verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So you see right off the bat that the purpose of God visiting his people in Christ is so that he can redeem them. And God foreshadowed all of this in detail in the Old Testament with the Exodus. When Joseph lay dying in Egypt, he promised his brethren, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. That's God visiting and God redeeming. Genesis 50, verse 24. That's how the book of Genesis ends, without promise. And that's what sets up the book of Exodus. And we know from the book of Exodus that Israel's situation in Egypt went from very good in Genesis, a great blessing, to very bad in Exodus, captivity and slavery. And they could not free themselves. They needed God to deliver them. And that's what redeem means. Redeem means to deliver someone from a helpless situation. So God visited his people in Egypt to redeem and deliver them. God did not redeem Israel by sitting out in the desert and calling them to come out to him. He did not redeem them from afar. No, he came into Egypt. He entered into his people's situation and their suffering. And having done so, he broke the power of Pharaoh and brought his people out. He set them free. And we see the same thing with Jesus in the New Testament. He didn't redeem us from afar. He didn't sit up in heaven and call to us. No, he came, he became one of us. He entered into our situation and our suffering in order to deliver us. Matthew 1, 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus doesn't redeem us from afar. He comes here. Hebrews 2, 17, In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And at the end of Zacharias' song, this theme of visitation is echoed and amplified. Verses 78 and 79. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here we have the theme of visitation amplified in two ways. First of all, we see that it is through the tender mercy of God that Jesus becomes one of us and identifies with us and redeems us. Now, we looked some last week at this Old Testament Hebrew concept of mercy, and we saw that it is a much bigger, more powerful concept than what the word mercy to us brings up in English. Remember the definition that we saw, if you put it all together in the Old Testament, God's mercy is God's never-changing, never-failing, promise-keeping love. 
It is the love that causes God to keep his promises to save and redeem no matter what. Even when it requires him to become one of us. Even when it requires him to die for us on the cross. Even when it requires him to go into the grave and rise from the grave in new glorified life. Even when it requires him to reign over all on our behalf. And we secondly see that it is as this person called the day spring from on high that God has visited us. Now, this is an allusion to the prophet Malachi, the last of the prophets before the 400 years of silence immediately prior to the New Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the Messiah is called the Son, the S-U-N, of righteousness, who rises with healing in his wings. When the sun rises, the day springs forth. Jesus is God's Dayspring, giving light to the world and dispelling darkness. He brings light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death so that they might see and be guided into the way of peace. Now, peace is the third word we've come upon that means a whole lot more in Hebrew and in the Old Testament than it does for us in English. Peace is a good thing for us in English, but it basically means an absence of hostilities. It meant that and a whole lot more to the Hebrews. Peace meant, it was shalom. It means blessedness. It means life under the blessing of God. Peace means life the way it's supposed to be. It means the good life in every biblical sense of the word. So this is all an allusion to the famous Unto us a child is born passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Listen to the lead-in of that passage. Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Why? Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called, among other things, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The coming of Jesus, the Messiah, who is God himself in the flesh, who visits and identifies with his people in their bondage and redeems and delivers them, this is the dawning of a new day for Israel and the world. So that's the first theme of Zacharias' song. God in Christ has visited his people. The second theme of Zacharias' song is that God in Christ saves us. God in Christ saves us. Verse 69, God has raised up a horn that is a powerful ruler of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, salvation in the Bible is a virtual synonym for the word redemption because the basic meaning of both is to deliver and specifically to deliver from a helpless situation. The Bible talks about three helpless situations that applied to Israel and all mankind. Number one, we have a sin debt 
that we are helpless to pay. We have a sin debt that we are helpless to pay. Number two, we have a judgment of condemnation hanging over us that we are helpless to get out from under. We have a judgment of condemnation hanging over us that we are helpless to get out from under. Number three, we have been taken captive by a slave master that we are helpless to get free of. When God visits and redeems us through Christ, he delivers us from all three of those helpless situations. And that, in a nutshell, is what salvation is. And this theme of salvation is echoed and amplified near the end of Zacharias' song in verse 77. It's speaking here of Christ and his forerunner, John, saying that they have been sent to give knowledge of salvation to God's people by the remission of their sins. So we see that the first step of salvation is the remission of sins. Because you have to remember it was Adam's first sin, then with our personal sins piled on top, that created the debt that we are helpless to pay. And that therefore brought us under the judgment of condemnation that we are helpless to get out from under. And that then brought us into bondage to Satan that we're helpless to get free of. So apart from remission of sins, that is the removal, literally the sending away of sins. That's what remission means, the sending away of sins. Apart from the sending away of Adam's sin and ours, there can be no salvation, no redemption, no deliverance. So we don't even get to first base apart from remission of sins. Remember Hebrews 2.17, which we just read a minute ago. In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remission is part of propitiation. Remission, the sending away of sins, is part of propitiation. Now, the easiest way to remember propitiation is to think of the Day of Atonement under the law of Moses. If you really wanted to be technically correct when you referred to the Day of Atonement, you would call it the Day of Propitiation because that is the more technically exact term for what occurred on that day. On that day, it took two goats to make one propitiatory sacrifice. It took two goats to picture one Jesus Christ and his one sacrifice of himself for all time. So the way that God would picture that in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, they would take the two goats, they would cast lots for them. The one uh, that the first lot fell on, his throat would be cut, his blood would be shed, which would be taken then by the high priest into the holiest of holies. This is the only day of the year that anyone could go in there. It would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And what that's picturing is that Christ suffering the just penalty for our sins and his shed blood cleansing the defilement and pollution of our sins. The second goat was called the scapegoat. Over that goat, on his head, 
With both hands on his head, the high priest would confess the sins of the people onto the goat. And then the goat would be driven away into the wilderness, never to return. That pictures our sins being sit away or remitted. And this is why Christ did not suffer at the temple in Jerusalem. But he rather suffered outside the temple, outside Jerusalem, out on Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of death. Because he is the one who not only sheds the blood that cleanses our sin, he is the one who carries our sins away. In Christ's death and shed blood, he sends our sins away. How far? As far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. So that's the second theme of Zacharias' song. God in Christ saves us. The third theme of Zacharias' song is that salvation in Christ is what the prophets have been talking about from the beginning. Salvation in Christ is what the prophets have been talking about from the beginning. Verse 70, As he, that is the Lord God of Israel, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. The very first prophecy was spoken by God himself to the devil himself right after Adam's sin in the garden. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. He shall strike a death blow to your head. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a succinct statement of the gospel. A death blow to Satan and the breaking of his power. The undoing of his works. And in all of history, there has only been one seed of woman who could accomplish this. Jesus, the God-man, born of the Virgin Mary. As the Apostle John put it, For this purpose the Son of God appeared, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 From the Garden of Eden onward, all the prophets have prophesied of the promised seed of the woman, who is also the promised seed of Abraham, who is also the promised seed of David, who is also Jesus Christ, who provides remission for sins and destroys the works of the devil. Acts 10.42, the Apostle Peter speaking, It is he, it is Jesus, who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And Zacharias' song echoes and amplifies this theme in verse 76. And you, child, speaking of the little baby John, will be called prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he had a special task that no other prophet had shared, and that was to prepare the way for the God-man, Jesus Christ, 
the one who would fulfill all of the salvational prophecies since the world began. And so Jesus told his disciples that John was more than a prophet. Luke 7, 26 through 28. John was more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. You think of all the great prophets in the Old Testament. Think of Joseph. Think of Moses. Think of David. Think of Elijah and Elisha and all the miracles they were. Think of Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and so many others. Jesus said that of all of them, none was greater than John because he was more than a prophet. Of all the men who have ever lived, God handpicked John to prepare the way for his only begotten son, Jesus. So that's the third theme of Zacharias' song. Salvation in Christ is what the prophets have been talking about from the beginning. The fourth theme of Zacharias' song is that God in Christ saves us from our enemies. God in Christ saves us from our enemies. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Remember, we've already seen that salvation or redemption involves remission of sins. That's first base. But it involves more than that. It also involves delivering us from the hand of all who hate us, beginning with the ultimate one who hates us, our arch enemy, the devil. He is the one who led our first parents into sin, thus bringing them and us under a sin debt we were helpless to pay, and thereby bringing us under a judgment of condemnation we were helpless to get out from under, and thereby bringing us into bondage to Satan from whom we are helpless to get free of. And the Bible teaches that in our fallen, unregenerate state, though we still bear the image of God in a passive sense in terms of the capacities God created us with, we no longer actively image God in the sense of actively reflecting and imitating his character, his loves, his will, and his example. This is why Jesus told the Jews, who all covenant members who wanted to kill him, you are of your father, the devil. How does Jesus know this? Well, because the desires of your father you want to do. John 8:44. The Bible also teaches us that in our fallen, unregenerate state, our mind is governed by enmity against God. Our mind is not neutral about God. We have an antipathy toward God. We have a hostility toward God. For, and so, therefore, our minds are not subject to the law of God because where does the law of God begin? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're not down with that in our unregenerate state. We want nothing to do with that. And so it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God because it's all about the relationship that we were created for. It all starts with the relationship and loving God. And if we want nothing to do that, then how are we going to please God? Impossible. 
The Bible also teaches us that Satan has so blinded the minds of unbelievers that they cannot see the light of the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And therefore, for an unbeliever to be converted, God has to do something. God has to intervene. God has to get underneath the hood. God has to grant them repentance. He has to give them the ability to turn from being facing away from God to turn to God. That's what repentance is. Leading to the knowledge of the truth so that they come to their senses. Suddenly they see and they escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2.25 and 26. That's the way Paul describes conversion. Now this does not mean that Satan takes over the wills of unbelievers so that they no longer make their own decisions for their own reasons. It means that in our unregenerate fallen state, our fundamental desires in life line up with Satan's because we want to be autonomous from the living God. And having that same basic grain cut in the same way as the evil one, that makes it very easy for Satan to manipulate the unregenerate however he wants. So coming to faith and repentance involves God breaking into our lives, breaking us free from that captivity to the one who hates us, and then transferring us to an entirely different jurisdiction, entirely different kingdom, so that we're under the reign of Christ who loves us. Colossians 1.13, here's how... Paul describes conversion. He, that is God the Father, has delivered us from the power, the reign of darkness, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And that brings us to the echoing thought of Zacharias' song in verses 74 and 75. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. This, folks, is what we were created for. This is the way of shalom, of peace, of blessed, of life, as it was meant to be. This is the good life. And that's what we do even now in this world because we're in the kingdom of the Son of God's love. So that's the fourth theme of Zacharias' song. God in Christ saves us from the hand of our enemies. The fifth and final theme of Zacharias' song is that Christ and the gospel are what God's covenant and oath to Abraham and the fathers were all about. Christ and the gospel are what God's covenant and oath to Abraham and the fathers were all about. Verses 72 and 73. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. These two verses, Zacharias by the Spirit is referring to two monumental moments in God's dealings with Abraham. The first is Genesis chapter 15. That's where God first made a covenant with Abraham. The second is Genesis chapter 22. That's where God swore an oath to Abraham. And what we're going to see with both of these passages, which we can just touch on, 
is that both Genesis 15 and Genesis 22 have Christ and the gospel all over them. All over them. Look at Genesis 15. Here, when God makes the covenant, he has Abraham take a number of sacrificial animals, cut them in two, place their halves facing one another, so you have a path between them. There is a path of sacrificial death. That is what that is uh, picturing. And then it says in verse 17 of Genesis 15 that a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between them. Now, the smoking oven and flaming torch is a description of the glory cloud. It's often called the pillar of fire or the whirlwind of fire or or the pillar of fire and cloud. It's the way God would manifest his presence in the Old Testament. Now, it's not really fire and it's not really cloud. It's myriads of angels who are radiating God's glory. But it looks to the naked eye like fire and cloud or smoke. So what it's picturing is that it is God himself that is walking this path of sacrificial death. Abraham doesn't walk that path. In fact... God immobilizes Abraham. It's clear from the passage, Abraham can't move. He's paralyzed. He can only watch. And the message is very clear. God is saying, I walked the path of sacrificial death. You can't walk this path. You walk this path, you just die. I walk this path, I rise in new glorified life never seen before. And so God is signifying that he alone is going to walk this path of sacrificial death. And that is how this covenant is going to be fulfilled and its promises are going to be kept. And Abraham and all those who believe are going to be heirs of those promises. This is significant because you see normally for covenant, or you could say a contract, you have to have two parties who each bind themselves by reciprocal oaths And obligations of performance. Otherwise, it's not a valid contract. This is still the law today as we speak. If you go to law school, you're going to learn this in contracts class. You have to have mutual promises and obligations of performance or you do not have a valid contract. The other thing you would learn in law school still today is that there is one and one only exception to that ironclad rule. And that's what we know as a last will and testament or a last will and covenant. Now, there's two parties still, but only one of the parties has obligations because the second party, that's the heirs. The only job of the heir is to receive. There's no active obligation, nothing for them to do other than receive. The testator, the one who makes the last one of the testators, that's the only one who is making promises and who is obligated to perform. But there is a catch. A last will and testament only goes into effect upon the death of the testator. Hebrews 9, verse 16 Where there is a testament, where there is a covenant of the last will and testament type, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. 
For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. When you have a two-party covenant exchanging reciprocal vows and obligations of a performance, then Abraham would have walked down between the animal parts with God, signifying that if either failed to keep their vows, then let their blood be spilt like these animals. But when you have only one party passing between the animal parts, what you have indicated there is that this is a last will and testament covenant. This path of death, this path of sacrificial death, is how this covenant is going to be enacted and made powerful. Hebrews 9.15 For this reason, he, Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What does inheritance mean? It means you're not talking about a normal contract or a covenant. You're talking about a last will and testament covenant. That's what we are. Romans 8, verse 15, you've received the spirit of adoption. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. You see, there's only one person in all of human history who inherits God's promises in his own right. And that's Jesus Christ. Because the rest of us don't qualify. The rest of us only inherit in union with Jesus Christ. When we're united with him by the Spirit through faith, all that Christ is and all that he has is ours. And what has the Father given him? The Father has given him the Father himself and everything he has. And that's ours in Christ. Well, we can only touch briefly on the second monumental moment, which is Genesis 22. This is where God has Abraham offer up Isaac on the altar and then spares his hand at the last second and then gives him his son back as a picture of death and resurrection. And God there swears an oath and says, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, notice how closely the language here tracks John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That's what is being pictured in Genesis 22. And that's where God says that through Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, once again, Christ and the gospel is all over Genesis 15. And it's all over Genesis 22. When the covenant is first made, when God takes an oath, the, the point is it's always been about Jesus, period. It's never been about anything else. And so in closing, we see that there is one single central storyline in the Bible. God is not doing one thing with Abraham and Israel and the Old Testament than something else with us Christians and the church and the new. There's one storyline, and it culminates with Christ. This is what it means in Galatians 4.4 when it says that in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son. Now, when we read that, we tend to think that, well, it's about time that you sent forth your son. That's not what it's saying. 
What it's saying is that everything that had happened up to that point, everything that's recorded in the Bible, everything that happened in all of history was leading to that point when God changed everything through the incarnation and birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what we'll consider next week in our Christmas Eve service. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.